Hi there, I'm Jazzy Cook and you're listening to Dance Season 2, an evidence-based, research-informed dance science podcast. Julie Farrell Olson holds an MSc in dance science from Trinity Lab with distinction and a BFA in dance from the University of Kansas. Julie works as a contemporary dancer, choreographer and teacher. As a dance scientist, Julie is interested in the biomechanical impact of footwear on dancers' performance and injury risk. Currently, Julie contributes dance science articles for Apollo Performance's blog, The Muse, works as a team leader for the Southeast Michigan branch of the Bridge Dance Project, and is an active member of the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. She presented her master's research at the 30th Annual IANIMS Conference in 2020 and was awarded the Student Research Award. Julie is looking towards continuing her education and research. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Um, I always just start with a little bit about yourself. So could you just tell me a bit about your career, how you got to where you are now and where your interest in dance science comes from? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've been a dancer my entire life um, and I did my Bachelor of Fine Arts at the University of Kansas. Um, and while I was there, I had the plan of going on to physical therapy school. So I took a lot of science classes, really diverse, um, looking at like anatomy, physiology, but then also getting into chemistry and physics. Um, so I had this really strong science background, but an arts major. Um, when I graduated, I realized that I did not want to go into physical therapy. Um, so I moved to Chicago uh, to pursue a career in dance. Um, I absolutely loved it. Just worked there for a few years, freelancing mostly. Um, really loved the community that I met there, but I still had an itch to get back into science. Um, was trying to find a way to merge my passions for dance and my passion for science. Uh, so I started looking to grad school. Um, and that's when I came upon the Trinity Laban uh, Dance Science Program. And I applied, got in and started in 2018 and graduated at the end of 2019. Perfect. Yeah. So could you tell us a bit about what your research is in? Just like a bit of background about that area. Yeah, sure. So my research came from Laban um, and I decided to look at socks on contemporary dancers and any changes in their biomechanics or the compensations that they may adapt when wearing socks. It really came from personal experience um, wearing socks in the studio and noticing other dancers wearing socks. And it was always almost a bit of controversy like, oh, you're wearing socks versus, oh, you're not wearing socks. And then even hearing it from some of my teachers, I remember um, Pat Graney in Seattle, I worked with her for one summer and she was just like, what's the deal with the socks? And then when I actually went to London, I had a teacher that was like, I really prefer to wear socks. Like, it helps me feel more grounded. And then if you look at choreography over the past decade in multiple major uh, companies, there's a growing trend of wearing socks in their choreography. So I was trying to be like, okay, like how do we actually answer this question what's the deal with the socks yeah definitely and I think with dancers anywhere I can kind of relate to that because some teachers are like socks off no socks ever I think it's just such an interesting thing to look at um so could you tell us a little bit about your research process and your methods sort of the sciencey side behind yeah that? sure um so as far as I know there are no previously published studies on socks so when we were designing our research um, we realized there were no previously published uh, studies on socks um, that we knew of. So we had to base what we had around um, kinematics in modern dance, uh, just movement. Um, and there really isn't a ton in there. Um, we found a case study uh, looking at the stag jump 
um, that really just quantified the movement of the lower limb through different stages of the stag jump. So from the push off phase to the flight phase to the landing phase. Um, and one thing of note from this study is that when dancers were landing, they noted that they had a relatively short landing phase, which probably helped them move on to further phrase work. Um, and so it was kind of like, okay, if anything like changes in the coefficient of friction or the amount of traction between the foot and the floor, that could be an effect on the dancer's movement or just like anything from the like takeoff phase to the jump, right? Any part of that, we have to look to see if there's any changes between being barefoot and wearing socks. Um, so for the study, we recruited six contemporary dancers from Trinity Laban, and we looked at three conditions, um, barefoot for our control, thin cotton socks, and thick wool socks. And we looked at those in a randomized order. Um, we had the dancers perform four stag jumps in each condition. Um, and to study it, we used 3D motion capture using markers on different bony landmarks, only in the lower limb. Um, and they landed on an embedded force platform to try to get some of the ground reaction force through there. Um, we just used normal socks that we bought at a department store. Um, so we didn't include any of these specialized dance socks that have recently come out. Um, so looking at the literature, there's not a ton on wearing socks as footwear either in sports science or in gait analysis. Um, and what we did find in the research uh, looked at slips actually. So they would have their participants walk across like linoleum tile floor or something where they weren't expecting a slip to happen. Um, and there were two um, compensations of note. So they would either adapt a protective gait, which is really that they would um, use to prevent falling from a slip or if they were anticipating a slip, I should say, um, where they really just like take shorter steps and lower their center of gravity and maybe like shift their weight forward a little bit. And then there is reactive compensations, which is like, if you think that you're falling, like um, any like reflex reaction, like swinging your arms or taking multiple small steps. Um, and since our study, like our dancers never slipped that we saw, um, there were no reactive compensations. So we were kind of like looking to see if there's anything to compare it um, to the protective gait. So it was really interesting because while my initial plan was to look at footwear, we didn't do anything with the mechanics of the foot within this. Um, and we really ended up looking at gait compensations and how it translates onto dance movement. Yeah, that's so interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about the findings? So what you actually saw in the dancers? Yeah, sure. So overall, um, dancers were really compensating their movement um, and reflecting the protective gait. Uh, we really saw this with the decreased stride length um, when they were running into the stag jump. Um, and they were also increasing their anterior pelvic tilt. So if you think of like, almost like sticking the tailbone out, um, which shows a little bit of a forward weight shift. Um, and then in the actual jump, we saw that they were not in the air for as long when they were wearing socks versus being barefoot. Um, and with that, they also didn't get as high in their jump. Um, on the landing, we also saw a decrease in their landing time. So they were almost like aiming for a softer landing when they were wearing socks. Um, but there was no change in the vertical ground reaction force from that. Yeah, sure. I didn't prep this. So if you want like a minute to think. Sure. <laughs> I was just wondering, so you obviously looked at leaps, but would you ever look at anything like turns? Because I guess that's why 
like thinking from my experience why a lot of dancers would put socks on is they think oh, I'll put a sock on to turn would you ever do any work into that or have you done I think that? that we really need to um I since I was only looking at contemporary dancers I had to look at what kinematic work was done on contemporary modern dancers and there was nothing on turns um so if we were looking at ballet dancers I think it'd be worthwhile but I think in the future that's some of the future research we need is to get more kinematic data on turns and like floor work and slides and like anything else like that um, before we can dive into socks but I absolutely think that turns are worth looking at yeah, it just made me think. Um, going back to your findings then, what are the implications of this for, there's kind of different areas that we looked at when we spoke last time. So sort of injury risk and biomechanics technique and also overall, I guess, performance enhancement. Could you talk to us a bit about what the implications of your findings are for these areas? Yeah. Um, since our sample is fairly small and this was the first city of its kind, we can't draw any final conclusions. Um, but based on what we saw, dancers were compensating their biomechanics and technique performing grand allegro movement while wearing socks. Um, as I mentioned, we saw reflections of the protective gait. And with that anterior pelvic tilt, there's a possibility for injury in the lower back. So if you think, um, this is really reflective of like compensated turnout as well. That's when we see a lot of that anterior pelvic tilt and that's often seen with low back pain and low back injuries. Um, we were also able to quantify the aesthetic difference between the conditions um, since dancers weren't getting as much time in the air or jumping as high. Um, so it wasn't just something we could see, but we also had the numbers to reflect it that, you know, the, the actual leap and the aesthetics of it were affected. Um, I think the finding I found most interesting in terms of injury risk was the landing. So with the faster landing time, there is an increase in the torque in the knees um, as increased movement speed is associated with increased resultant joint torques um, when other factors remain constant. In this case, our vertical ground reaction force was similar through all three conditions and there's no changes in the maximum knee flexion. Um, so like the amount that they were bending their knee on the landing. Um, from this, we can assume that there's a decrease in knee joint stiffness. Um, so as they're taking a more cautionary approach to landing the stag jump in socks versus barefoot, they're aiming for a softer landing. Um, and although there isn't like a super strong uh, defined relationship between joint stiffness and injury, um, it has been suggested that decreased um, torsional knee joint stiffness may allow excessive motion in the joint and lead to soft tissue injuries. So if they're not holding their leg as strongly, then there's more likely to be some shift in the um, soft tissues. And that can lead to um, injuries like ligament sprains or tears and bursitis, um, which would all be really detrimental to a dancer's career. It's difficult, like we said, like you just mentioned that it's difficult because it is a small sample, so we can't make any sort of yeah. definitive conclusions but what do you hope that teachers or dancers might be able to take from this in a studio setting so when a teacher says take your socks off or put your socks on I guess what do you hope that they could take from this yeah setting? I think honestly that approach is the most important just being really mindful about what the safest practice for students may be um, so like yes socks can prevent marley burns and um, other skin conditions that like with abrasions on the floor um, and like if, with turns like we talked about um, if they don't have the calluses built up on their feet to do multiple pirouettes. 
Um, but we also have to be like mindful, like, okay, we're moving into ground to leg, we're moving into larger phrase work. Should we leave these socks on and like risk this like slipping and potential falls? Cause we didn't even look at falls that could happen. Um, and just like, you know, okay, take your socks off or allow students to like make that judgment call based on their comfort. Um, but it's really one of those things we just kind of have to gauge and be mindful of what's the safest practice. Yeah, definitely. So looking a little bit more generally then about your experiences in dance science. So a bit about the highlights and the challenges so far, your favorite bits, what you found difficult. Yeah, I'll start with the um, challenges, I guess. Um, since dance science is still a relatively new field, um, there's so many pieces still missing from the research. Like I talked about, we don't have very much kinematic data on modern dance and this is the first time that I know of that someone's looked at socks. Um, so it's, it really limits how deep you can go into a project, but it's also really exciting to be able to lay the groundwork for future and continued work. Um, moving on to the highlights, I um, feel so connected to this work, um, just being able to, like I talked about my background, having this dance background and the science background being like, okay, how do I merge these two? And just finally being able to like find a career that like just is literally dance science, like the per two things that I want to study. <laughs> um, and it's really changed my approach in how I work as a performer and a teacher. And I feel like those aspects keep me driven and excited in my research as well. Yeah, I love that. So where do you see this going next then? So your long-term goals personally, but also where do you see future developments of this research and where do you think it needs to go next? Yeah, there are a lot of aspects um, future research could take on on this subject. Um, there's so many minute details that we didn't even touch on, um, like different flooring and the um, different fibers of the socks and um, just recreating this work um, I think the most important thing is that it needs to be replicated on a larger sample. Um, and then we need to look at more diverse movements like turns and floor work and slides. Um, we just kind of need more of everything for this right now. <laughs> um, for me long-term, um, I'm starting a PhD soon um, and I'm really excited to see where my potential research takes me um, and the different paths I could go down. Um, my ideal like dream job, <laughs> I'm going to manifest it now, um, would be to work collaboratively between a kinesiology department and a dance department so I could continue my dance science research, but then also be able to implement it into a practical studio setting because I feel like that's one thing that's really missing right now. Yeah. Yeah, I love that so much. Um, it's been so great to have you on today, Julie. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or discuss? Yeah, I'm okay right now. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Chat soon, Julie. Bye. Bye. Louisa Petz is a PhD candidate at the Centre for Dance Research at Coventry University. She is the recipient of the Arts and Humanities Research Council Studentship Award. Her interests lie in community dance and its potential to improve psychosocial well-being for older adult populations. Currently, her research queries whether community dance classes in different dance genres all offer entirely unique experiences of well-being, belonging and meaning for older adults. Louisa Pett studied at Trinity Lab and Conservatoire of Music and Dance and was a recipient of the Trinity Lab and Dance Award Scholarship. She graduated with an MSc in Dance Science in 2019 with distinction. Prior to that, Louisa studied at the University of Roehampton, 
achieving first class honours and receiving the prize for the best dissertation in BA Dance Studies in 2018. Louisa currently works as a community dance artist with South East Dance Company, delivering dance classes to those living with dementia in assisted living homes. She also acts as a dance science lecturer with BBA Dance and as an editorial assistant for the Journal of Dance and Somatic Practices. Hi Louisa, how are you today? Hi, yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I always just start with a little bit about yourself. So if you could tell our listeners a bit about your job and how you got to where you are now, and I suppose where your interest in dance science comes from. Yeah, um, so I am currently a PhD candidate and researcher at Coventry University um, at the Centre of Dance Research. Um, I'd also say that I am a community dance artist and I'm also a dance science lecturer. Um, I previously studied an MSc in dance science and uh, I discovered my passion for dance science through volunteering um, in a community dance setting. Um, so I've volunteered for Dance for Parkinson's and Dance for Dementia classes in my undergraduate years um, and I found the experience of dancing with a completely new demographic that I'd never really been exposed to before um, really illuminating and just to see how transformative dancing can be um, made me want to explore that area academically. Um, so my current research interests center around community dance practice and its potential to impact psychosocial well-being and perceived identity and meaning amongst uh, older adult populations. So the overarching aims of this research is to explore their experiences, um, any inclusionary attitudes for older communities and whether these differ um, within the specificity of dance style or genre. Um, so I want to broaden the existing research scope um, in dance for older populations um, beyond contemporary, beyond ballet, beyond ballroom and beyond varying levels of dance experience as well, I'd say. Yeah, amazing. That's so different to anything we've had on before. So this is going to be really interesting. Um, can you tell us a bit about the focus of your master's? So what does your master's look at and what inspired you to research this area? So the focus of my MSc thesis was to explore qualitatively the experience of family caregivers for people living with dementia. Um, and I did that through interviews um, and interpretative phenomenological analysis. Um, so on a personal note, I have personal experience of the effects of dementia within my immediate family um, and the nature of its care. Um, so that alongside my voluntary experience within dance community classes for those with degenerative neurological diseases like dementia and Parkinson's, um, it acted as a really motivating drive um, for me to enhance the understanding of those dance experiences for, for caregivers of people living with dementia. Um, so that was the focus of my MSc thesis. And I, I really wanted to give voice to the narratives of caregivers in that setting, um, even if the class isn't designed for or advertised for caregivers, they do take part and they do enjoy it. Um, and they are encouraged to partake in those dance classes. Um, so I guess I identified uh, a bit of a gap uh, within existing research. 
Yeah, so like I touched on just then, we haven't really looked at community dance yet on the podcast. So could you give us a little introduction as to what this actually is for our listeners? You kind of touched on it there, but what does it tend to look like and what are the key benefits generally? So community dance and its practice, uh, it's grounded in the imperative belief of dance inclusion for all participants. Um, So it's about creating opportunities for anyone to access dance, regardless of age, gender, sexuality, race, socioeconomic circumstance. Um, It could be any genre, any style. And it's about engaging creatively in dance, whatever form it may be, um, enjoying yourself, expressing yourself. Um, A really lovely quote uh, that I try to carry with me in my practice is from uh, Animated in 2009, which is the community dance magazine from People Dancing. Um, And one of its core values of community dance, it says that it is challenging aesthetic norms and broadening perceptions of who can dance, what dance is and what it may be. Um, So for example, in my dance practice, uh, I dance with people living with dementia in assisted living care homes. Uh, So I'm delivering dance in a community context in effort to aid their social and psychological well-being. Yeah, I love that. So before we go any further, something that I found interesting is when you were talking about well-being, what this actually refers to. So what does this actually mean when we talk about it? That's a really interesting question. And it's one that I'm actually trying to tackle at the minute in my uh, PhD research. Uh, It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, So well-being is an ambiguous, elusive state Um, And it's considered to be subjective, um, so it differs from person to person. Uh, It's transient and it's it's difficult to measure. Um, So as an example, dance has been described uh, in research as able to promote a sense of well-being amongst older adults. um, But there's not really any sort of clear illustration as to what a sense of well-being is, what it might mean, what it refers to. Um, And it can be broader than just happiness. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it is an elusive state of being and it it differs from person to person. Um, So loads of different models and measurements of well-being exist. There's the the PERMA model, um, which uh, was designed by Martin Seligman. And that stands for uh, five core elements of happiness and well-being. So that refers to positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. Um, And then the World Health Organization also defined health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Um, So they've traditionally morphed from absence of disease and illness and focusing on sort of pathology uh, to incorporating physical, social, psychological aspects of health. Um, So well-being can be seen as holistic, um, incorporating all of those realms, and my interests primarily centre around the psychosocial well-being and how older populations understand and evaluate their experiences in dance settings. Yeah, that's perfect. So could you talk us through your process and your research methods? So you mentioned it's a qualitative design, which gives voice to experience. How does this work well with your research? Um, So according to um, a book I really like called Qualitative Research, The Essential Guide, 
to theory and practice um, by Savin Baden and Major, um, published in 2013, um, which I would really recommend reading if you're interested in qualitative research. Um, they state that accusations of bias uh, are common in qualitative research, um, but a quote I really love from sociologist Howard Becker is that arguably research is always conducted from someone's point of view. So regardless of if it's quantitative and as objective as you like, that research is always informed by someone. Um, so I think it really actually argues how qualitative research has the ability to add a, a new dimension to studies that can't be obtained through quantitative measurement alone. I like hearing people's experiences. I like asking them questions and, uh, and experiencing what they want to tell me. I think it's a real privilege to uh, be welcomed into someone else's social world like that and for them to be so generous with their time um, is something I really enjoy about this particular uh, methodology. Um, and I'm not so concerned with uh, frequency or generalizability of findings. Um, I appreciate that in science that is something that is strived for, especially in quantitative measurement. Um, but I think really digging down into different people's experiences and disseminating those is just as valuable in itself. Um, but it's also imperative that you acknowledge and understand your reflexivity as a researcher in that case, because it's informed by someone, your possible biases need to be really transparent. Um, so being transparent, I think, is key. Yeah, for sure. Can you um, can you give us a little bit about your actual research yourself? So your kind of process and how you went through that? Yeah, no, I... Um, I really enjoyed the research process. I had never done anything like that before. My undergraduate thesis, um, I mean, I guess it was kind of linked to research in the sense that I explored ethics um, in choreography, um, particularly in uh, Rudolf Laban and Mary Wigman and their choreography within the Nazi uh, regime and kind of looked at ethically, can you divide their choreography from the political climate at the time um, and sort of philosophical theories around intention and that sort of thing. So ethics, I guess, and ethics in research I've always been interested in and aware of, um, but actually conducting an empirical study I'd never done before. Um, so overwhelming, daunting to begin with, thinking, oh my God, how am I going to conduct this research, you know, and talk to people and, and accurately display what they think and, and honor their experiences. I just really love talking to people and uh, giving voice to their experiences, giving them a platform to express what dance means to them. Yeah, that's so lovely. So if we look at your results a little bit, so you mentioned last time we spoke some of the key themes, sort of engagement, um, identity, maybe. Can you expand on this and were there any others? Um, so through using uh, IPA analysis, um, uh, my findings suggest that the caregivers perceived emotional and psychological benefits from dancing. Um, so even though 
this research was conducted on quite a small scale. I had three participants uh, volunteer their time with me. Um, I think that there were very clear outcomes, um, which I hope to eventually go on to publish. Um, so community dance participation provided caregivers with uh, respite. Um, so it, it acted as a form of rest where they just said that they didn't feel totally switched on during the dance class. They felt that they could just take some time to just dance um, and not perhaps worry so much about the person that they were caring for. Um, reaffirmed relationship connectivity between the caregiver and the care receiver, uh, social engagement and relatedness to the other people in the community dance class, um, other carers, other um, participants. And they also felt a rediscover sense of identity outside of being a caregiver. So uh, felt like a dancer or they just felt felt like themselves again. Um, so the findings offer insight into the appropriateness of dance as a method for alleviating any potential psychological or social stresses that can be experienced uh, by acting as a family caregiver. Um, and I think that advocates for greater availability of community dance classes for those experiencing and living with dementia and for their caregivers. Yeah, that's great. So was there anything else particularly interesting aside from your key findings that you've identified that came out of the research? Yeah, so um, the importance of uh, the dance facilitator uh, or the teacher um, in the community dance setting, um, that was one area that a lot of the participants touched on and said that them being there uh, was really key in their experience, particularly in terms of respite, um, because they felt that the teacher or the facilitator, the artist, whatever you want to call them, um, took on that responsibility of caring um, and that they were there to offer support and they were there to uh, not only deliver the dance, uh, but to, to listen um, to any sort of you know, qualms that they may have, to just offer advice, to, to be there um, as a supportive figure. Um, and I think that really highlights uh, perhaps some of the practical applications of this research uh, in that showing how important these people are, these artists are, these classes are um, in the wider community. Um, so it's it's not just a dance class. It's it's it acts as much more than that. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, what challenges did you find in doing your master's research, and what do you hope to expand on in the future? I guess that kind of ties in what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, as part of my PhD research, um, it's a continuation of what I did in my MSc um, by exploring dance for older populations in more dance genres outside of your typical ballet, contemporary and ballroom. Um, there's not a total absence of research in this area. There's some really great research out there um, and it's picking traction. It, uh, it's picking up traction, sorry, in the recent years. Um, and I guess it's relevancy uh, is in response to the, the nationwide attempt at the minute to shift focus 
to person-centered care um, by NHS England. So by 2023, I think it is, I hope it is, might have changed now, but by 2023, all GPs in England will have the ability to refer patients to community and arts-based activities uh, for both practical and emotional support. Um, so it's known as social prescribing, and it is believed that these medical alternatives have the potential to remedy loneliness and obesity and depression, um, amongst other significant benefits. Um, so I hope that my research will kind of add to that empirical understanding of how arts interventions can aid well-being for older populations and bridging practitioners across both arts and social health sectors. Um, and in the future, I think further longitudinal research with larger and more diverse participant samples is definitely something to strive for. It's always something to strive for in research to try and represent more people um, and more diverse um, members of the public. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. Hopefully in the future, that's something that will happen. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I actually didn't know that. So that's really lovely. Um, what are your suggestions for application following your research then? And what do you hope to see in dance in the future following your research? So in light of the current advent of social prescribing and heightened value being placed on arts and aiding well-being, I hope to deepen inquiry on the current value of dance for older people and their emotional and social well-being. Um, and through dissemination of my research, in the future, I aim to raise awareness of the accessibility and availability of community dance classes for older adults. So where can they find dance classes? Where can they go to partake in dance classes? Who do they have to be in contact with? And hopefully through research, that signposting can be promoted and it can be, and its importance and its value can be shown. Um, I think it holds potential policy impact of interest to health organisations, where if we understand the potential benefits of dance for older populations, more classes can be promoted and they can keep or sustain their funding. Um, yeah. Yeah, perfect. So if you could give dance teachers some advice on how to implement just some of the principles that you've found to prove community dance successful, what would that be? So I'd really recommend Age and Dancing, uh, Older People and Community Dance Practice. It's a book uh, edited by Diane Ammons. Um, she's just a really great author um, for community dance literature. Um, but this book in particular is really great. It's got loads of key resources drawing on the importance um, of societal and cultural concepts of aging, um, as well as practical considerations like safeguarding um, in community dance classes that are really key to consider. Um, but as a general rule, um, I'd recommend treating everyone with dignity and respect, um, encouraging autonomy in dance practice, let them lead, um, don't ever assume that they can't do something. Um, don't assume that they can't dance, don't assume that they won't be able to do that move. Trust or create an environment that means that they can trust you to say if they can't um, and if they need some extra help, whether that be physically or emotionally. Um, specific to my dance practice with people living with dementia, um, 
I would say that you need to see the person rather than the condition. That's a, a quote from Ammons. See the person. Don't see the dementia. Don't see the condition. Um, granted, it might affect the way that they engage with the class, um, but that's not all they are. Um, they're there to dance. Encourage creativity and create a safe and emotionally open environment. Um, ask for feedback. Uh, avoid unnecessary conflict, consider your use of language, uh, use positive statements and avoid terms like elderly, which can be considered, can be, which can be considered derogatory or offensive. Um, and anything someone tells you uh, in confidence, keep it confidential, uh, unless you think that they're gonna be a threat to themselves. Anything they say, you know, they're talking to you like you're a friend and you're someone that they trust. Uh, so yeah, confidentiality is also key. Just be respectful, be open and communicate. That is so much useful advice there. That's just amazing. Thank you so much, Louisa. Um, ultimately, I guess your research advocates for greater availability of community dance. So how do you think that this could be achieved? Yeah, 100%. I aim to advocate for this through my research, uh, definitely. Um, it could significantly improve upon existing knowledge of what exactly the relationship is between artistic and cultural and social health outcomes uh, with a broadened, more varied dance community. Um, and I think awareness and integration of dance for holistic well-being for different demographics and populations from different from your traditional dancer in education. Um, I went to some really, really great institutions in my undergraduate and in my masters, where I learned about dance for older people, uh, dance for people in prisons, in healthcare settings, but I knew very little about this prior to my undergraduate study. Um, I think continually promoting the idea that dance can be for anyone and everyone is key. Um, and I think that's starting to gain momentum slowly but surely. Um, but certainly when I was younger, um, it, I was so focused on performing and I was so focused on my own dance practice that I didn't quite consider how it can be applied to the wider community. So in my current research, I'm exploring different types of dance genre and style amongst older populations and what meaning that might have for them and how that might contribute to their well-being. And I think all types of dance need to be encouraged. It should be commonplace for different dance activities to be accessible for older populations. And such provisions should provide a wide range of dance to suit and be meaningful to them. Um, and also intergenerational dance activity, although it's not my current research focus, I think is an area of community dance and research that's really exciting. Um, not dividing people being like, you're part of an older age category and this is a class designed for you. And then you're part of a younger category and this is a dance class for you. I think blending the two and encouraging a dance practice of collaboration and exploration amongst people of all ages in the same physical spaces um, can show again that dance can be for everyone and anyone in a really powerful way. Yeah definitely well thank you so much for your time today Louisa it's been great to chat with you. Thank you for having me on. 
Sam is a dancer made researcher through discovering the field of dance science at the University of Calgary in Canada. She recently graduated from an extended research dance science master's degree, wherein her research focused around developing a dance specific balance test. While actively making steps towards publishing her findings, Sam is currently a certified personal training specialist working out of Alberta in Canada. Sam has found a passion for helping other individuals find the joy of moving again through increased movement efficiency and improved physical fitness to achieve a greater overall quality of life. Hi Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, how about you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, so a bit about your career, how you got to where you are now and where your interest in dance science comes from. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I was quite an energetic kid. So naturally, I went into dance because of that. They were like, well, we can just put you there and you can do that and get out your energy a bit more. Um, so I was kind of a competitive dancer in Canada. We do that quite a bit. Um, so I did kind of just all styles, like all the way from ballet to hip hop kind of thing. Um, and then I went to the University of Calgary for a BA dance degree. And essentially, I kind of thought I wanted to be a dance teacher, but then I discovered dance science as a topic through Sarah Kenny at the University of Calgary. Um, and then I applied for the extended research degree at Trinity Laban and MFA in dance science and kind of went through that. And then while I was at the MFA, I did quite a few strength and conditioning classes and things like that focused for dancers. Um, with Kyle Eccles and then I kind of fell in love with that so now <laughs> now I'm a personal trainer um, starting up my career in that in Canada so yeah. Yeah I love that and Sarah Kenny's actually going to be on this season as well I think so oh, yeah like before or after this one but hopefully people can listen to that as well. Um, <laughs> how did you, you kind of just touched on it there but how did you end up studying your MSc then is it something you always knew you wanted to do? Or? Um, definitely not did not know I always wanted to do that. Um, essentially I discovered the MSc through talking to Sarah Kenny, as I said, at University of Calgary. And when I grew up, I grew up in quite a small town in Canada. And it was kind of like, if you were a dancer, you were going to be a dance teacher. And that was that, was that full stop. Like either, there were no other career options essentially at that point um, that I knew of or that we were ever taught. So I just thought I was going to be a dance teacher after that. And then I also didn't really love science growing up. Like I just didn't, I couldn't really relate to it. Like I just don't care how fast the train was going versus the other train. Like I just didn't. <laughs> I could do the math, but I just didn't care. <laughs> so then when I found uh, the equations and things like that, when they applied to dance specifically, I was like, oh, oh, I get it. And like real world, real world um, outcomes. I mean, of course, physics also has real world outcomes for trains and things like that too, but it's just not my <laughs> specialty. So yeah. So yeah, kind of once I figured out how science related to dance, that kind of marriage of both I found was a good fit for me. Yeah. yeah definitely and that's something that I relate to so much like in school I wouldn't like look twice at physics it just was so far from my sort of thing but then finding this it just makes sense and I kind yeah. of wondered like what if they'd taught it like that in school do you think that we would see it's just so crazy anyway yeah <laughs> um sure so a bit of background then to your research area so an introduction it's about balance so a bit of an introduction to balance and some key concepts and terms for listeners who might not be from a dance science background just a bit about the research that already exists in the field as well yeah of course so just like um very standard balance as a whole is just your ability to keep your center center of gravity within your base of support so essentially usually your your two feet <laughs> in everyday life and then in dance quite often it's on one foot um, and that can be doing kind of static balance so just holding a position or a dynamic balance where you're you're moving limbs voluntarily that kind of throws you off a bit or reacting to 
an external disturbance. So if someone pushes you, if the, the ground is a little bit wobbly, things like that, that's kind of where balance comes in. Um, and then uh, a bit more into like, you know, the human, the human postural system has different um, kind of sensory systems that affect your balance, the somatosensory, the visual and the vestibular, and that can all affect how you can balance. So somatosensory is your proprioceptors, um, visuals, obviously your eyes, whether you close your eyes or not, um, or have them open can really affect your balance. And then the vestibular is just like your inner ear vertebrates and how they contribute to your spatial orientation and where you are. <laughs> um, so then essentially, as I mentioned with, with dance, a lot of dancers tend to balance on one leg. So that is kind of just a requirement for a lot of um, positions or movements or even just moving through a movement that's on one leg um, and doing that while maintaining aesthetic lines <laughs> and technique is important for most dance styles that isn't really necessarily needed for a lot of other sports. So previous research on developing dance specific balance has had been done, um, but none have really been considered sensitive enough to be used to detect um, specific deficits in proprioceptive abilities or any muscular imbalances. So um, previous research studies also some of them haven't looked at validity and reliability as well, which obviously you want to look at that if it's actually being used in the field for research or for screening. And um, right now, no dynamic functional test is considered like a, a gold standard to test dynamic balance. So it's really hard to actually clearly establish that validity as well. Just kind of <laughs> nitty gritty stuff there. Um, but so yeah, some newer research focused on like more subjective based uh, balance tests. So there's a balance test called the star excursion balance test, which is the one that I've based my research off of. And um, previous researchers have looked at the test and tried to make it more dance specific and then focused on kind of the more subjective values. Like, um, yeah, just looking at it more subjectively, but I'm more of an objective gal myself. So I kind of wanted to develop the more objective side of things more like both have, both have their merits in research um, and they have their reasonings to do either one, but yeah, I kind of just wanted to focus on the more objective side of things, um, specific numbers um, to compare to when reassessing specific dancers, I guess. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's great. So could you talk us through your like process and methods of doing it, I guess, um, from a research perspective, and more anecdotally, maybe a bit about your journey through it and how the project developed? Yeah, so I came into my master's actually wanting to do like an entirely different subject um, based around like EMG and muscle activation, things like that. Um, but then in the fall of my first term, we did um, we did some biomechanics courses and things. And I was like, you know what, I actually really like this. And weirdly enough, I was kind of at a random lunch with Sarah Kenny when she was visiting. And then uh, my supervisor, well, soon to be supervisor, not supervisor at the time, James, um, Broner, I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> and then Liliana Rujo was there as well. But essentially, James mentioned something about getting an extended research master student to look into something to do with biomechanics or whatever. But that was that was just at the start of my biomechanics course. And I was just kind of like, eh, that's not what I want to do. He'll find someone else. It's fine. And then once I finished my biomechanics assignment, I was like, no, I actually want to do this. <laughs> so then I emailed him. I was like, so what was that that thing, that idea you had? <laughs> um, so then kind of, yeah, when, when, it when it came time to submit our research ideas, um, he kind of mentioned the SCBT, the Star Excursion Balance Test. And he felt that there was quite a gap that needed to be filled when, with regards to developing a dance specific version. 
so then I, I just kind of took it from there. I took that idea and kind of did the, the background research into it, of course, and developed it from there on my own. Um, and then my research itself just looked at different like dance specific positioning of the body, upper body and lower body, um, different temporal aspects as well as different spatial aspects. And then basically I essentially picked out the best bits that were harder slash what I felt was a bit more dance specific and then combined that into a final protocol that I then tested to see if it was challenging or not. But yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. So we're not going to look at your findings specifically today because hopefully they're in the works of being published, right? But yeah, <laughs> just generally, what were the sort of outcomes or findings that you do want to share today or anything notable or interesting? Yeah, so I guess we did, um, so we did kind of three phases of testing throughout my research. Um, um, yeah, so essentially I was lucky enough with the extended research master's um, at Trinity Laban to do a full year of research. So I did my research in three different phases. Um, the first two phases really blended in, well, fed into each other and then fed into the third phase, which uh, tested a final protocol of what kind of our dance specific SCBT, star excursion balance test was going to be. And it consists of kind of three increasingly difficult stages that test the dancers spatially, temporally, and positionally in a dance specific environment. Um, and we also did test and find some pretty promising results with regards to reliability and internal validity. So that's kind of exciting. It just means that it's not something that can kind of just get washed over. Hopefully it'll be actually used in real world. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what were the biggest challenges you would say of doing the research? Um, I think for me, it was definitely like, I love people, but scheduling because um, especially my, my first kind of phase of it all is using a 3D motion capture system at Kingston University. So already I was kind of lowest priority because I wasn't necessarily a student at Kingston. Um, so then I had to schedule my schedule, my supervisor schedule, the lab schedule and my participant schedule and try to make all of that work. And that was quite challenging. And then if people didn't show up kind of trying to figure out how we can work around that. Um, but yeah, I was definitely fortunate enough to complete my third phase of data collection right before, literally the week before lockdown happened. So luckily all of my, because it was very obviously in-person lab-based testing. So luckily I got all of that done before kind of COVID hit, uh, which I'm definitely grateful for and the chance I had to do that and complete the study when I did. But um, yeah, and then from then on, I just kind of assessed obviously and did all the statistics and all the writing up of everything. But yeah, so I think the biggest challenge for sure was scheduling people, but then I also feel <laughs> grateful that I had that time and I had that experience and I didn't have to do everything online because I definitely feel for the researchers right now that are going through that struggle. Yeah, definitely. So what were the main highlights you would say of doing the research? Um, well, I guess uh, flipping the coin of my challenging, obviously working with the people, like the individuals themselves, the dancers were amazing um, and just kind of I guess having a hope of, of a chance of making a difference, kind of a, a, even if it's just a tiny, tiny ripple in the dance world of creating some sort of balance test that will hopefully be able to um, help dancers and be sensitive enough to detect if they're ready to go back to performance or things like that. So it's kind of like the highlight of it all is hopefully it will get used and it does have some real world application. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's so cool. Um, so do you hope to keep researching in the future then, or would you hope to develop what you've done already with future research? Um, yeah, so I'm currently focusing on publishing, as you mentioned. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to a PhD in the future. Not really in the books right now, um, money. <laughs> but um, yeah, the test once it's published will hopefully be used more widely to test 
answers balance and really challenge their skills. And you could also argue that the test could be used as like kind of like a, a balance strength exercise as well, which would be an interesting and exciting prospect. Um, but yeah, I've built a base from here that I can start looking at kind of, if I did want to do a PhD in the future, I can use this test to look at different effects of like taping and injured versus non-injured dancers and things like that. And really making sure um, that it is sensitive enough to test dancers when they're um, injured and their readiness back to performance. But yeah, I think right now I'm just focusing on <laughs> publishing what I have and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. I hadn't actually prepped this. So like, if you want a minute to think, that's fine. Um, but I was just thinking, what advice would you give to other master's students or other kind of recent grads who are looking to put out their research or currently finishing their research or anything like that? Have you got any advice you would give to them? So I guess with, 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 doing a, with doing a master's in general, I guess my advice would just be to have an open mind because there were definitely a lot of scenarios and a lot of classes that I took that I was like, this isn't what I thought I'd be taking. But having a, an open mind to it really helped. Um, trying not to just close it off. It was like, no, this isn't really science. I'm not going to focus on it, but like it is. Um, so yeah, I guess have an open mind. Right now with COVID, it's really, really tough. Like <laughs> learning online is really, really tough. Um, so I guess something that uh, we had, we had monthly meetings as master students, as MFA students. And after everyone kind of shared where they were at, after every single person, we always just say, said like, keep going, woohoo. Like we were just trying to cheer each other on. So I guess I would just encourage you to cheer on people as you go um, and feel, yeah, feel, take that, take that energy as well if you get cheered on. <laughs> but yeah. I love that, that's so nice. Um, is there anything else you want to discuss or mention today? Um, yeah, I guess just, just keep an eye out for if I do get published. That would be great to share that and have that read. Um, and But yeah, just mainly thank you for having me on and considering me for your podcast. No, thank you so much. It's been so great to chat. I'm for sure when it's published, I'd love to follow this up with some more detailed chat about the findings, I guess. Yeah, of course. Useful resources and contact details are in the description box down below. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next Monday for another episode of Dance.